We are continuing our study in the book of Exodus, and we will be in Exodus 7, 8, 9, and 10. So buckle up. You've all heard it said that actions speak louder than words. You've heard that, right? Well, what about God's actions? God speaks not just with his words, but when God acts in history, those actions, well, they display a part about who he is. Just like when we show a behavior of faithfulness or courage, that displays who we are. So it's not just that we learn about who God is as we read about God or we hear his words, but we also learn something about God when we see him act in history. And this morning, you guys all know the story. It is one of those famous story, you know, that Hollywood is all drooling after. Today we're going to look at the first nine plagues in the Exodus story. It's a story you know. It's a story that you might not have been told the right way. By God's grace, I can get it right this morning. But it really does, as God acts in history to bring upon these nine plagues, it shows us, I want us to see, two aspects of God's character. The the purpose of why God brings these plagues on Egypt is really clear. Fourteen times from uh, chapter 7 through chapters 14, or 12 times, it says the purpose of why he does this. The purpose of why God brings the plagues upon Egypt. And the purpose is simply that God is going to make his name great in Egypt. That's the purpose. Now what aspect of God's character or name or or character is kind of on display through these plagues? Well, we see two of them. And it's the big idea that is going to be behind me this morning. God makes a name for himself by first judging his enemies, and then second, preserving his people. We're going to see God's name being great as as he is the just God who judges his enemies, and then second, as the God who in the midst of that judgment, nevertheless, saves and perseveres his people. Go with me to chapter 7. We're just going to read the first five. This is sort of the prologue, the introduction into this narrative. Verse 1, And the Lord said to Moses, See, I have made you like God to Pharaoh, and your brother Aaron shall be your prophet. You shall speak all that I command you, and your brother Aaron shall tell Pharaoh to let the people of Israel go out of this land. But I will harden Pharaoh's heart. And though I multiply my signs and wonders in the land of Egypt, Pharaoh will not listen to you. Then I will lay my hand on Egypt and bring my hosts, my people, the children of Israel, out from the land of Egypt by great acts of judgment. The Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord. Here's the purpose, David. The Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord when I stretch out my hand against Egypt and bring out the people of Israel from among them. We'll stop there for a moment. So I didn't read it, but if you go right Before chapter 7, there is a question that Moses asks 
God. He, he says, how will Pharaoh listen to me? And chapter 7 answers it, doesn't it? God asks, or Moses asks God, I mean, I, I'm, I'm weak, I'm small, I'm from nowhere, I, I was in exile for, for 40 years. How in the world were the most powerful man in the world listen to me? It's an honest question. I assume it's a question all of us would ask. And God answers in the first few verses of chapter 7. God basically says, you're right. Pharaoh is not going to listen to you. But my word is still going to go out. And this word that's going to go to Pharaoh and all of Egypt is not a word of encouragement to Pharaoh in Egypt. It's a word of judgment. Moses earlier asked that, that question like, who is God that I might let you go? Pharaoh's about to find out who this God is. The Pharaoh who did not listen, who did not obey, who did not follow uh, the, the request, the command that came through Moses and Aaron. Well, Pharaoh is about to find out the very God in whom God's people worshipped. This is a call of judgment that's about to come on Egypt. After all, they are God's enemies. Now, I think it's helpful to kind of frame this story like the original movie, The Karate Kid. Okay? Some of you, this is the first time you're listening, okay? All right, so, so what we have is, is, if you remember the final scene, it's so old, I don't even care if I'm ruining it. If you haven't seen it yet, whatever, Okay? So at the final scene, we have this famous karate match, right? And that's really what's going on here. We've got those from Cobra Kai. You're going you're to like this, this illustration, okay? We've got Cobra Kai, you know, with the emblem of the cobra, pharaoh cobra. Okay, you see where I'm going with this. And then fighting the other dojo, Miyagi, with the bonsai, right? With the Garden of Eden and life, Okay. And so, Cobra Kai representing Pharaoh and Egypt in one corner. And in the other corner, we've got, uh, you know, representing the bonsai tree. I can't even take this serious. Uh, you know, we have God and God's people. It's kind of set up like this. This is a war going on. Pharaoh and Egypt versus God and God's people. But we're, so, we're going to learn, just like in the original Karate Kid, this is not a fair fight, okay? God is going to, you know, wipe out uh, Pharaoh in Egypt. It's, it, it's just not a nail-biter, okay? The, the story ends, just like the Karate Kid, with Cobra Kai always getting a crane kick to the face, okay? And in some ways, that's what goes on. God is going to display his greatness, his godness, his creatorness in the judgment that's coming upon his enemy, which is all of the Egyptians and also Pharaoh. Now, there are ten plagues. We're only going to look nine of them. The, the tenth really is sort of the climax of the plagues, but we're going to look at the first nine. And, and these kind of plagues, we, we can call them many things. And in these four chapters, they're called signs, they're called wonders, they're called miracles, they're called plagues. They're called all of those things. You notice the symbolism here, right? All of those words kind of explain partially that these are dazzling, 
terrifying cosmic acts of God to display his power in light of God's enemies. Now, many of these plagues, we're not going to read all of these, but but we've got many plagues, and I'm guessing if you read this or if you were a kid and you read this, you'd think, these are weird plagues. Like, this doesn't sort of make sense. We've got frogs and the Nile. You know, we've got gnats and flies and locusts and darkness. Like, what in the world is going on here? Is this just, like, randomness? No, 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 no. This This is purposeful. And so, if you read any of the commentators, they'll all point out that actually each one of these plagues that falls on Egypt, it really is in correspondence to a god in Egypt. So in Egypt, there wasn't just a god. There was like a pantheon of gods. And so what God is doing in these various plagues is God is kind of like like checking off God after God, defeating God after God after God, showing that he is much more powerful than all of the gods of Egypt. So for instance, I'll just give you one example. You've got the ninth plague, which is darkness that covers the land for, for three days. Well, one of the most famous and oldest deities in Egypt was the sun god, Ra. And so what God does when he brings darkness on the land is he shames, embarrasses, silences the god Ra and says, you can't even do your job. So that's one aspect of this. God is going to judge the gods, but, but it's more than that, and you're going to see as we pick it up. So let's, let's look, starting in verse 8, and you're going to get a rhythm because the judgment that comes, plague after plague, it's like a drumbeat. It comes with repetition. There's a lot of similarities, and so we only have to read a few to kind of get what's going on here. So we'll start in verse 8, and we'll just read the entire rest of chapter 7. Then the Lord said to Moses and Aaron, When Pharaoh says to you, prove yourselves by working a miracle, then you shall say to Aaron, take your staff and cast it down before Pharaoh, that it may become a serpent. So Moses and Aaron went to Pharaoh and did just as the Lord commanded. Aaron cast down his staff before Pharaoh and his servants, and it became a serpent. Then Pharaoh summoned the wise men and the sorcerers, and they, the magicians of Egypt, also did the same by their secret arts. For each man cast down his staff, and they became serpents, but Aaron's staff swallowed up their staffs. Still Pharaoh's heart was hardened, and he would not listen to them, as the Lord had said. Then the Lord said to Moses, Pharaoh's heart is hardened, he refuses to let the people go. Go to Pharaoh in the morning, as he is going out to the water. Stand on the banks of the Nile to meet him, and take your hand the staff, and take in your hand the staff that has turned into a serpent. And you shall say to him, The Lord, the God of the Hebrews, sent me to say, let my people go that we may serve him in the wilderness. But but so far you have not obeyed. Thus says the Lord, by this you may know that I am the Lord. Behold, with the staff that is in my hand, I will strike the waters that is in the Nile, and it shall turn into blood. The fish in the Nile shall die, and the Nile will stink, and the Egyptians will grow weary of drinking water from the Nile. And the Lord said to Moses, say to Aaron, take your staff and stretch out your hand over the waters of Egypt and their rivers, their canals, their ponds, and all the pools of water, so that they may become blood. And there shall be blood throughout the land of Egypt, even in the vessels of wood and in the vessels of stone. Moses and Aaron did as the Lord commanded. In the sight of Pharaoh and in the sight of the servants, he lifted up the staff, struck the water in the Nile, and the water in the Nile turned into blood. And the fish in the Nile died, and the Nile stank, so that the Egyptians could not drink water from the Nile. 
There was blood throughout all the land of Egypt, but the magicians of Egypt did the same by their secret arts. So Pharaoh's heart remained hardened, and he would not listen to them as the Lord had said. Pharaoh turned and went into the house, and he did not take even this to heart. And all the Egyptians dug along the Nile for water to drink, and they could not drink the water of the Nile. Seven days passed after the Lord had struck the Nile. So the, the first sign, before we even get to the plagues, God tells Moses and Aaron to go into the sort of court of Pharaoh and to take his staff and turn it into a serpent. And Aaron does this. It's amazing. But sort of the shocker in this is that someone else does it too. Right? We've got Saruman doing it as well. We've got these, these sorcerers, these magicians who do the very same thing that Aaron does. Now, what's sort of going on here? Well, I don't think that this is some sort of like sleight of hand. I don't think this is like a David Copperfield trick. I think they really did this. And then the text gives a clear way of how they had this power. It says they did it by their dark magic, right? By their dark arts. And then notice if you go to that first uh, plague, the, the Nile turning into blood, which I read earlier, did you notice that the magicians do the same thing? The water of the Nile was blood. The magicians in Pharaoh's court used their dark magic and they did the same. And then if you go to the second plague, where there's frogs multiplying everywhere, the magicians come again. They can multiply frogs as well. All by their dark magic, if we can sort of call it like that. And I just want to point out that, that their sort of magic, that their, their ways in which they do this, their secret arts, it has limits. These dark sorcerers can only mimic God's power. Right? They can produce snakes and blood and frogs. But in a sort of poetic irony... You know, poetic justice. All they can do is add to their misery. They can't take away from it. Do you notice that? Right? It's the whole Nile is bloody and they just add more blood. You know, there's frogs everywhere and what do they do? They can't reverse it. All they can do is just add to their misery and by their power. But then notice also that not only does it have its limits, but oh, God's power is far greater than these magicians. These sort of, we can call them religious leaders in Egypt, right? Aaron puts down his, uh, they both have this sort of like sorcerer's duel. They've got the snake or their staff that turns into a snake. And what does Aaron's snake do to the other snake? (sighs) Devours him, which is a sign that, that Aaron's God is much more powerful than the gods of Egypt. And then when you get to the third plague, right, gnats are covering the, the, the land like dust. And the, the, the sorcerers there finally just go, we give up. We actually can't do this anymore. And they then attribute this to the hand or the fingers of God. They, they, the religious leaders are like, whatever's going on here, it's greater than our pay grade. But not only are these magicians sort of professionally embarrassed, When the sixth plague comes, which is boils, we read of this in chapter 9, verse 11. You can look at it. The magicians could not stand before Moses 
because of the boils, for the boils came upon the magicians. So at the sixth plague, the magicians are not just beaten. The plague comes, the judgment comes to such an extent that they have to fall prostrate before God himself. That's how defeated they are. So not only does God judge the religious leaders, the sort of magicians of the day, we also learn something else about God's judgment on his enemies. We learn that actually the judgment gets worse and worse and worse and worse and worse as the plagues go along. So so it starts with blood in the Nile, then frogs, but as the plagues go, actually judgment gets worse. So so go to chapter 9. Go to chapter 9, verse 13. Let's look at this seventh plague. Then the Lord said to Moses, Rise up early in the morning and present yourself before Pharaoh and say to him, Thus says the Lord, the God of the Hebrews, Let my people go that they may serve me. For this time I will send all my plagues on yourselves and on your servants and on your people so that you may know that there is none like me in all the earth. For by now I could have put out my hand and struck you and your people with pestilence and you would have been cut off from the earth. But for this purpose, I have raised you up to show you my power so that my name may be proclaimed in all the earth. There's our purpose statement again. You are still exalting yourself against my people and will not let them go. Behold, about this time tomorrow, I will cause a very heavy hail to fall such as never has been seen in Egypt from the day it was founded until now. Now, therefore, send, get your livestock and all you have in the field into safer shelter. For every man and beast that is in the field that is not brought home will die when, he, when the hail comes. Then whoever feared the Lord, uh, whoever feared the word of the Lord among the servants of Pharaoh hurried his slaves and his livestock into the houses. But whoever did not pay attention to the word of the Lord left his slaves and his livestock in the field. Then the Lord said to Moses, stretch out your hand towards the heaven. So that there may be hail in all the land of Egypt. No man and beast and every plant of the field in the land of Egypt. Then Moses stretched out his staff toward heaven. And the Lord sent thunder and hail and fire ran down in the earth. And the Lord rained hail upon the land of Egypt. There was hail and fire flashing continually in the midst of the hail. Very heavy hail such as has never been in the land of Egypt since it became a nation. The hail struck down everything that was in the field in all the land of Egypt, both man and beast. And the hail struck down every plant of the field and broke every tree of the field. Only in the land of Goshen, where the people of Israel were there, there was no hail. We'll stop there. Now, we live in the Northwest, so hail, not that big a deal, right? But there's parts of, uh, of even America where hail can be like the size of golf balls, right? Montana is one of those places. And if you don't believe me or you want to see what the destructive force of hail is, just go outside into the parking lot and see my blue Honda CRV, which was first my grandmother's who left it out during a hailstorm. And my car looks like it got shot by a drive-by shooter, all right? But... Really, what's going on here is that Egypt's not worried about their chariots getting dented. It's bigger than that. When hail came with this sort of uh, of thrust, everything is ruined. Man, beast, crops, they're ruined, their food supply. And did you notice also the description? Look at verse 22. 
Then Moses stretched out his staff towards heaven, and the Lord sent thunder and hail, and fire ran down on the earth. Verse 24, there was hail and fire flashing continually, very heavy hail. Verse 25, the hail struck down everything that was in the field, both man and beast. I mean, this is a terrifying description, right? It's, it's, it's hellish. When my wife and I were on our honeymoon, we were in the Caribbean, and we got hit by a tropical storm. And it was scary. I can't imagine what it was like on that day when the seventh plague came in Egypt. But then it gets even worse when you get to the eighth plague. Locust comes, and whatever wasn't destroyed by that hailstorm, by some sheer dumb luck, well, it now gets eaten up by the locusts. Destroyed. All throughout this description, God's judgment gets worse and worse and worse. And not only that, we, we, we learn as it relates to this, this judgment that's coming on God's enemies, it's not just getting worse, it's comprehensive. If you notice, the first two plagues have to do with water. The next two have to do with the air, and the next two have to do with the land. So you just put it all together, and what's he saying? The judgment's coming from top to bottom. It's complete. It's the entire land, air, beast, water, all of it. This is, as it relates to God's relationship to Egypt, God's judgment is coming completely on them. God's not just like flexing his muscles. God is overwhelming Egypt with his power. And did you notice how God does this? I mean, God God could do this many ways, but God chooses to do it in a particular way. He takes creation, right? He he repurposes creation. The the plagues here in this judgment, it's a form of de-creation. So when God created, when you think back about Genesis 1, which The Exodus account is very much connected to Genesis 1. But when you think about Genesis 1, animals were created by God to serve humanity. And now they're harming humanity. Water was created in order to to give uh, life. And now it's bringing death. And then when you just think of the the, the whole kind of climax of the creation story in Genesis 1 and 2, what is the, the culmination of creation? God creates humans. And the last plague comes, and it's the death of humans. It's a, a God decreating. It's like creation in reverse order. Which is interesting because not only does God do this, he brings sort of chaos on the lands of Egypt, but after each plague, there's a reprieve. God then once again brings order out of chaos, doesn't he? Now, why, why does he do this? Why is he using creation in order to judge Egypt? Well, it really is a form of poetic justice. It's a form of, uh, of the punishment fits the crime. If you remember back in uh, Exodus 1, what was it that Pharaoh and Egypt were doing? They were st- seeking to stamp out God's people. And yet the first an earliest command that God gives the people is to be fruitful and multiply. And Pharaoh stands in opposition of that creation command. 
And so God unleashes creation upon them. This is not God going overboard. This is God perfectly applying the just punishment for Egypt's sins upon them. So don't, in one sense, feel bad for Egypt. I mean, we we should have pity on Egypt, but the punishment perfectly fits the crime. It's calculated, it's fitting, it's precise. But perhaps the most terrifying description of punishment and judgment is really Pharaoh himself, which we said earlier, Pharaoh is that, 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 that satanic, that Satan image. He is the, the seed of the serpent. And if you notice, there's a repeated theme. You saw it at least twice in what I read. And it's that Pharaoh's heart is hardened. Pharaoh's heart is described as being hardened. And it's interesting because you might say, okay, who hardens Pharaoh's heart? Is it Pharaoh or is it God? Well, the answer is both. In the first five plagues, Pharaoh hardens his own heart. And then there's a shift in plague six. And it begins to say that God hardens Pharaoh's heart. So you really do have human responsibility set side by side with divine ordination of God. And yet, and we could talk more about that, what that means, false salvation. We, we could talk about that after the service. But, but really what I want to point out is that the description of Pharaoh in his sin and in this hardness of heart. Like, what are the symptoms of a hard heart? Well, we learn, one, that Pharaoh doesn't listen to God. We also learn that God, that, that Pharaoh wants to negotiate with God. Did you notice that? That multiple times... God's people come and say, we need to go. We need to go to the wilderness. We want to serve God. That is the command. And Pharaoh tries to negotiate and says, okay, that's fine. Just don't go too far. And then later on he says, that's fine. You just can't bring the children, which makes sense. Then he can guarantee that God's people would come back, right? They got to go pick up the children from children's ministry in Egypt. So Pharaoh tries to negotiate with God, have have sort of uh, this relationship with God on his own. Um, terms. But it's also interesting that uh, in a few places, Pharaoh himself says, I have sinned. And you're reading the narrative and you think, finally, Pharaoh gets it. He sinned before a holy God. He's going to repent. And you're like, no, that's not what's going on here. This is a perfect description of someone acknowledging their sin, acknowledging the consequences of their sin, but never repenting of their sin just going right back to their sin. He wants reprieve, right? It, it, it would be horrible and, and very uncomfortable to be in Egypt as an Egyptian, right? It makes sense for him to cry out and say, fine, I sinned, I want this done. But, but when it does end, he goes right back to where he was before. He is, after all, only out for himself. First, God tells Pharaoh, and then Moses and Aaron And then his counselors on the eighth plague come to him and say, Pharaoh, everything is ruined. Just let him go. Pharaoh's hardness of heart is such that he just won't even at that request of his closest elders. He will not even listen to them. We could say that Pharaoh is blind. He's self-deceived, self-obsessed. And he is on a trajectory of ruin. Have you ever met someone like that or know someone like that? 
You, you just see their life. And they are so blinded by where their life is going. The trajectory of their life. That everyone can see that it's going to end in ruin. But they just can't see it. That's Pharaoh, isn't it? That's a description of the hardness of heart. The ultimate expression of judgment. One uh, 19th century pastor described the, the hardening of Pharaoh's heart in a similar way. He, he said that sin, and I just love this because I think it's so true. Sin is the suicidal action of the human will. Sin is just a form of, of, of suicide in the sense that the more and more you do it, the harder and harder it becomes to not do it again and again. And so God's judgment comes on Pharaoh. And it comes on Egypt. In a right way, a just way, a calculated way, a fitting way. And he does all of this to make his name great in the land of Egypt. Which I might add, might not sound like good news or comforting news. But that reality, the the reality that God will make his name great as he judges his enemies, is really good news. It's really good news for us. It means that God cares about justice. About proximate justice here on earth and also ultimate justice in heaven. God cares about fighting evil. There's sort of a current national conversation about being on the right side of history. That can be hard to know. Well, there really is only one right side of history. And it's on the side of the author of history. There is a lot of injustice in this world. We're not promised a world where there is no injustice. There is suffering. There is injustice. That will keep happening until Jesus returns. And yet, what this tells us is that God is not aloof from injustice or evil or suffering. It's not just going unchecked. There will be a day of reckoning. We're promised that. We're promised that one day there will be perfect justice. I think that's comforting. It's comforting in whatever is happening in this world. Whatever injustice might have befallen us or you or this world. To know that though we seek to to, to seek restitution. We want to fight. When we see injustice. That's what it means to be a Christian in many ways. Just to say, this is what God's word says, and we're going to live and die by that. And yet at the same time, we know that it's not going to come perfectly. And so we can be comforted in the reality that God will one day right every wrong. Well, now, briefly, we looked at God's displaying his character in the judgment of his enemies. Just briefly, I want to look at one more truth, which is that God, in the midst of this judgment, he perseveres his people. All right? Starting in the fourth plague. Look at the fourth plague. Starting in the fourth plague, in verse 22, we learn that as the the plagues fall on Egypt, God's people are spared. Flies would come to Egypt, but not in Goshen. Livestock would die, but not the Israelite livestock. Hail would come, but 
they got a heads up to get out. And, and, and really what I think is going on here is actually all of the plagues, I think there's good reason to believe that in all of the plagues, God protects and perseveres his people. You, you even go to the frogs or you read the, about the blood in the Nile and the emphasis is on what? The frogs are everywhere. They're in the toilet. They're in the Egyptian house. They're everywhere in Egypt, but it doesn't say anything about Israel. And then in four, it does tell us like, oh yeah, God's people are away and persevere. What this tells us is that even when judgment comes, God's people, they're persevered. They, they persevere. They're safe. They find refuge. And it's not just in the Exodus, right? It is true also in final judgment as well, right? If you go to the book of Revelation, you don't go there and don't freak out. I'm not going to actually talk about Revelation that much. But if you go to the book of Revelation, you see God's judgment, final judgment, the day of the Lord coming. And it's cosmic, complete. It's a terrifying description. Just read Revelation sometime this week, Revelation 7, 8, 9, 10, and 11, right? You've got these seven seals, seven bulls, seven trumpets. They're descriptions of judgment that are coming. But have you ever noticed how that judgment is described in the book of Revelation? Let me point out a few ways in which in the book of Revelation picks up the imagery of this judgment in, in chapters 6, 7, 8, 9, 10, and 11. We have fire from heaven, darkness, animals dying, crops ruined, hail, sea turning into blood, locusts, sores breaking out on people's skin. We even see frogs. Sound familiar? All of those images, all those words are used to describe the coming day of the Lord, that final and ultimate judgment of God on all his enemies. It's as if, and John really does, you, uh, John, the author of Revelation, he writes in Old Testament. What he's saying is, and what John is pointing to, is that the Exodus is, is actually pointing to a greater or the judgment in Exodus is pointing to a greater judgment to come. It's no coincidence in this language. John is saying what happened in the Exodus, it's but a foretaste of what will come one day. The judgment in the Exodus is God's down payment that he will fully and final, finally bring judgment one day. Such that if you believe the, the Exodus story of old, well, believe the Revelation story to come. But perhaps the most eerie similarity in Revelation and the, the story of the Exodus is that just like in the Exodus, when you read the book of Revelation, you find out that God's people, they conquer, they persevere, that God protects his people even when judgment comes on that awful and ultimate and final day. Suffering comes, God's people are not absolved from that, but they are absolved from judgment. That only falls on God's enemies. The, the judgment in Exodus, is, it, it's, it's scary. It's a sight to behold. It pales in contrast to that coming judgment that will one day come at Christ's return. Now, maybe you're asking, how is it? How, how can you be certain 
Or how can you know if you can find refuge in the midst of judgment? And I think it's just easy, it's interesting to know that it's not, oh, you were just born into a family. Because if you notice, actually, um, in the Exodus story, God even says, those, those Egyptians who believed God's word, they also went to Goshen. And then it becomes pretty clear when you read in a couple of chapters in the Exodus, there are Egyptians who leave with God's people. So it's not just all of Israel. It's all those who are trusting in God's word. But how do we find refuge in the midst of judgment? How will God deliver and save a people when judgment is so right and true and necessary? Now, you, you know I'm going to go to Jesus right now, all right? And I need to go to Jesus. But look how I go to Jesus. Because Jesus is our ultimate shelter from the storm of judgment. But there are so many parallels between the Exodus story and Jesus. Let me just point out a few. At the beginning of Jesus' life, creation announces his birth. When magis, magicians, come and announce his birth. Jesus' first miracle? Turning water into wine like Moses. Like Moses, he has command over the sea, right? He could just tell a storm to cease. He has that creator power. He provides even food from heaven. One time Jesus was on a walk, he saw a fig tree and he cursed it. I mean, it's, it's really clear. Jesus has literally creation at his disposal with, I think, the clear message that the creator God was walking with his people. And then at Jesus' death, what comes over the land? The plague of darkness. Creation then became undone, just like in the Exodus, right? The earth shook, rocks split. Creation is, is coming undone when Jesus is dying. Because the judgments of Exodus were coming but it's interesting because we think that it would come on God's enemies, all God's enemies. But it doesn't come on God's enemies at that moment when creation is being undone. All of the wrath of God's righteous judgment comes in that moment on God's own son. Not the Egyptians or not all those who are sinners, but in that moment, the plagues of Egypt fall on God's own son. He is in that literal and true sense, he is the enemy of God at that moment. It says, the hymn says, till on that cross as Jesus died, the wrath of God was satisfied. But then the, the, the chaos of creation, it's not, it's not done. God would then bring order out of the chaos Remember the the ninth plague, three days, darkness covered the land. Well, for three days, Jesus lay in a grave in darkness. But then God rose him from the grave, vindicating him as the righteous and true mediator in whom anyone can put their trust and faith in and find refuge from judgment because judgment fell on him. So what is the Exodus story about? It really is a paradigm for salvation. That judgment must come. 
on God's enemies. And having come on Jesus Christ, you can find refuge as you put your trust and faith in that sacrifice for you. That is the purpose of God. The Exodus story, as scary as it is, points us to the gospel story of Jesus Christ who saves us through judgment. We are all here sitting in this room. We are not God's people. To use Peter's language, to use Hosea's language, we are not God's people. But it's because of Jesus' life, death, resurrection, and ascension that not God's people become God's people. The gospel is simply this, that friends, that enemies of God can become friends of God because God's son became an enemy when he took on our sin as our substitute. Now, one last thing, and we'll close in prayer. There is one more repeated thing that I just want to point out briefly by way of application. That as God delivered his people and saved them through a gospel of exodus, he saved them not just from their sin. It says over and over again, I saved them and I'm going to deliver them that they might serve me. Do you notice that? So, so, so the purpose of the Exodus isn't just that God would save them. It's having saved them that they might serve God. And that purpose has flown down through history. Passed down from generation to generation. We exist as God's people. We exist as God's people with a purpose, which is to magnify God's name, to display God's name by serving him. That's now our sort of application. It's worship, right? I mean, this story of the Exodus, if you read the Psalms, you read the prophets, you even get to the New Testament, they say, look back in that story, God's mighty deeds, and just worship God for who he is. That's what we do. We look at this story and the judgment that should come upon us, but instead comes upon Jesus' son, and we worship. We do it corporately. We're going to do it in a moment. That's what communion is. Communion is the celebration and worship of Jesus Christ and what he's done for us in binding us not just to himself, but then binding us to one another. We do it individually. But we also do it with our lives in the actions and how we live out our lives, right? Just going back to the beginning, actions do um, speak louder than words, or at least sometimes they do. And what we're called to do is with our lives is to display God's greatness, the greatness that we see on display in the book of Exodus, to display his greatness as we interact in the world, as we love our neighbors, as we serve our neighbors, as we forgive, as we practice hospitality, all of those actions, all of those behaviors are meant to magnify God and his great name. They are ways in which we serve God. Not so that we could become saved. No, 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 that's not the Exodus paradigm. The Exodus paradigm is having been saved, now we serve God. Well, let's pray. Let's pray as those who have put our trust and faith in Jesus Christ. Lord, we pray 
knowing that we don't deserve your grace and mercy. We, we pray that you would encourage us in that reality. We pray, Lord, that as we even um, take this communal meal, we would be reminded one day of the sheer grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. And we pray, Lord, that we would either for the first time or the thousandth time continue to put our confidence and trust in Jesus' life, death, and resurrection. We pray all this in your son's name. Amen.